Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Our preaching series uh, this Advent season has been centered around uh, women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. One of the main questions we've been trying to answer as we look into the lives of these women is why? Why why have they been mentioned um, as what we've been calling the uh, mothers of Jesus? None of the women so far have served the purpose of uh, refining Jesus' pedigree in any way. In fact, there are these, these are the kind of relatives that um, you might want to overlook if you had done any research on Ancestry.com and uh, characters such as these had popped up. You might want to just ignore that uh, side of the family. And so Ruth presents us with the same dilemma as the women that we've uh, heard about so far. She was a non-Israelite woman with no distinguished lineage that we have any uh, record of. And if Matthew was trying to establish the position of Jesus as the true king of Israel, why does he keep mentioning non-Israelite women? Well, in the case of Ruth, we get a hint of the work that Jesus is going to do in the gospel. Ruth's story is is a picture of the grace of God found in an unexpected place. 
in the life of a Moabite woman who happens to marry into a Jewish family, we find an illustration of God's commitment to his people that will find its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Ruth's story is preparation for the gospel. And here's the main idea. God's grace is shown in his commitment to those who are in desperate need of him. We'll see that in three ways in Ruth's story this morning. Her resources are exhausted, she's abandoned by others, and, her, uh, and finally we'll see that in her covenant commitment to Naomi. So let's jump right into our first point, um, Re- Ruth's resources exhausted. Our passage begins this morning with an impossible choice faced by a woman who's come to the end of everything that she could rely on. It may seem at first glance that Naomi was the victim of a hard set of circumstances. It seems that Murphy's Law may have taken its full effect in her life, and that she was just having to make, make the best of a situation in which everything that could have gone wrong in her life had gone wrong to this point. But that would not do justice to just how serious the problem is for Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah here. Many of you may be familiar with the old radio broadcaster Paul Harvey. Harvey was famous for his trademark delivery of telling a story that had a twist at the end. He'd take on a topic that was familiar to his audience and keep out a small detail until the very end. And then he'd finish with his famous tagline, and now you know the rest of the story. I made a date of myself by um, being so familiar with Paul Harvey, but um, trust me, you may be able to find him on a podcast if you're not from the the generation of listening to the radio, Um, but... Anyway, now, I need to do my best Paul Harvey impression and fill you guys in on the rest of the story that uh, led to where Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah are today. So they're not dealing with just a rough patch in life. Let's, let's get that um, in the forefront of our minds. They're not just learning how to make the best of a bad situation. And they're actually living with the consequences of repeated decisions to walk away from, from God and his command, commandments to his covenant people. The family that Ruth married into had a history of unfaithfulness to God. Elimelech, the patriarch of the family, had decided to move his family away from, Mo, away from the promised land into Moab when there was a famine in the promised land. Of course, you can't exactly blame him for wanting to provide for his family when there's no food to be found at home. But the Old Testament, uh, we learn in Deuteronomy 7, that uh, the spiritual situation of uh, someone who's moving into Moab and encouraging his sons to marry into uh, the Moabite uh, family is something that is very problematic for God's covenant people. And so the fact that our story begins in Moab is of no small significance. And if you were an Israelite hearing this story for the first time, um, you probably have known that nothing good is going to happen from a family moving from Bethlehem to Moab. Moab was a historic troublemaker for Israel as well. Not only um, were they dealing with the repercussions of intermarrying, but they're also dealing with the history of uh, conflict between Israel and the Moabites. This family had faltered in the face of difficult circumstances and let their lack of trust in God snowball into unfaithful decision after unfaithful decision. But now Elimelech had died along with his two sons, and Naomi was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And neither of the daughters-in-law had any children as well. So all signs um, from this brief family history point to the conclusion that they were facing God's judgment 
for uh, not trusting to pr- him to provide for them in difficult uh, circumstances. And so these three women are just trying to pick up the pieces of a broken life after a failed attempt to uh, make, life, make a life better on another, side of par- another part of the country. In fact, they're dealing with something much more serious. They're also wrestling with the repercussions of a history of disobedience dating back to Naomi's husband. When Elimelech turned his, first turned his eyes to Moab and wondered if the grass might be greener on the other side. And now we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. So we should ask ourselves, what difference does all this make for Ruth? Well, the story doesn't seem to put any blame on Ruth for the spiritual state of the family that she married into. For her part, she was an innocent bystander. Excuse me. She was an innocent, innocent bystander who just happened to be wrapped up in the story of a people who had been on the wrong side of God's judgment. The backstory to Ruth's current hardship serves as to provide us with an extra layer of just how hopeless and helpless she was. Um, and that it's just her, herself, her mother-in-law, and her sister-in-law trying to figure out how to survive in Moab. Now, of course, Naomi makes this, the seriousness of the situation clearer in verse 6. They needed to head back to the place where they could feed themselves on a regular basis. It was just as simple as that. She was willing to make to take two Moabite daughters-in-law and face potential backlash of the folks back home. They most certainly would have been the objects of scorn and ridicule as they came crawling back not to Israel now that times were better. And I doubt that Naomi expects much of a warm welcome from those who had stayed from those who had stayed behind and waited for things to get better. But their physical needs were so severe that she's willing to go anyway. In verse 8, Naomi further expands on just how little they had by, by way of resources by urging the two younger women to return back home and to search for new husbands. Women without husbands in those days were especially in, a, in an especially vulnerable position. No family meant no food, no security, and no future. So you can imagine just how heartbreaking that weeping must have been in verse 9. In our day, it's hard to understand the hopelessness of this situation that these three women faced on their own. Today, it's actually quite normal for a woman to succeed and be self-sufficient on their own. So maybe the best way for to put ourselves in, our, in their shoes is to think about being stranded on a desert island with nothing but the clothes on your back. Every bite of food you eat, every bit of security and protection you have to scratch up by your fingernails, and you have to uh, provide for everything on your own. But also add to the mix that um, on the desert island, you're on the desert island by yourself, and God's position towards you is um, possibly one of judgment because of the sins of people who have, uh, didn't even make it on the uh, lifeboat to the island. So where should Ruth go from here? In the midst of emptiness and weeping, in the hopelessness, what would you expect her to do? Or perhaps more importantly, where do we go when all hope is lost? What do we do when it feels like we've run out of resources to make things better on our own? Up to this point, Ruth has had every reason to throw in the towel and turn back. In our next point, we'll see not only that Ruth was emptied of all of her resources, but she had also been abandoned by others when Orpah turns back and goes to Moab. And so, in our second point, Noah, Naomi, excuse me, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law have begun this journey back to Bethlehem, back to Naomi's people. 
The only thing they have to go on is, uh, at this point, is a good word that Naomi had received that God was providing for his people in Israel again. They had received no formal invitation, and they weren't going to. They're going to have nothing to claim of merit for themselves when they arrive. They have no leverage or ability to uh, get into the good graces of someone who's there. They're making their journey with nothing to go on but a wing and a prayer. And probably not even a prayer, considering Naomi's attitude at the time. So as the journey wears on, you can almost feel the weight of Naomi's heart increase. Until she finally makes her first plea to the two young women to abandon this fool's errand and go back to Moab. Naomi probably doesn't have much confidence in the plan at this point, and the guilt of carrying these two women along with her is uh, more than she can bear. But in verse 10, both young women show their resolve, and they tell Naomi that they're going to stay with her. And so Naomi ramps up her argument to the next level. The key here is to realize what's happening from a storytelling point of view. The impossibility and the futility of the situation is pretty clear from the description of the uh, first couple verses in our passage. And when they first lift up their voices and weep, it seems like the natural point for both women to part ways. But when Naomi, Naomi has, ex- has to extend her argument with Ruth and Orpah, we get the sense that the situation is potentially really, really bad for them if they stay. This isn't just a half-hearted attempt at Na- on Naomi's part to offer them an out if they really want it. She's essentially begging them. She's begging them that to look at everything that's happened so far and to uh, take the obvious route back to security and happiness. The point is becoming painstakingly clear at this point for us. There's no good reason to continue on this journey to nowhere. Naomi is now throwing everything she can at these women to try and convince them to give up. It's becoming clear that the story is leading to a point where one of these younger women is going to crack. When the evidence piles up and the comforts of home begin to call, we see that Ruth is the only one that can maintain steadfastness in the midst of it all. This illustrates a point that you've probably felt if you've been a follower of Christ for any period of time. Faithfulness, like Ruth's, is more often than not um, choosing to uh, go the harder path. But at the same time, you also feel like you're going to be alone and abandoned. So what happened to Orpah? What, happened, what, what caused her to abandon this cause? What caused her to ultimately back out of her original commitment to go the distance with Naomi and Ruth? When we see Orpah turn back, I think we're given the opportunity to look at the differences between judging our circumstances with the eyes of faith and judging our circumstances from the perspective of worldly wisdom. There are at least three things going on for Orpah um, that lead her to her decision to go back to Moab. The first is that worldly wisdom only sees the easy way to security. To go on with Naomi to Judah was clearly the harder path to take. It was potentially going to involve more work on the part of the women. They're going to be unwelcome. They're going to have a very difficult time providing for themselves on their own. More than likely, they're going to have to depend on the charity of others. It was going to be much more difficult to find a husband and start a family in Judah, in Judah considering the bad blood between Moab and Israel at the time. Orpah chose the easier path, but it ended up leading her away from the land where God's promises were being fulfilled. The second thing about worldly wisdom that impacted Orpah's decision, I think, is 
that she only sees impossibility and emptiness, whereas the eyes of faith show that God can um, work in spite of the circumstances that overwhelm us. When Orpah looked forward to her prospects in Judah, she probably saw a whole lot of nothing. There was little chance of her living in a, a fulfilled life where she is going to have to start all over from nothing. There are, there are always going to be times when walking down the road of faithfulness seems like there is no obvious good end in sight. The eyes of faith are willing to look down that road that seems impossible and seems like no obvious good can, re can result. Think of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conventional wisdom was calling out with the words of Naomi, go back. The eyes of faith lead us to trust and take the next faithful step. Finally, the third way that worldly wisdom works is that it has an operating assumption of doubt of God's character. In verse 13, Naomi's closing argument for why Ruth and Orpah should turn back is bitterness regarding God's treatment of her so far. Orpah is probably beginning to look back and start to take inventory of how life has gone so far from a family who claims to have uh, um, Yahweh as their God. At face value, there's every reason to be skeptical, and Naomi's bitterness probably only adds to uh, Orpah's skepticism. And so this time, she makes the choice to leave. She reneges on her initial commitment. Ruth now is on her own, and as her sister-in-law seems, like, seems to make what seems to be the most promising situation given the immediate circumstances. Everything seems to be falling apart for Ruth, but she still clings to Naomi. If you've ever felt like you were out of resources, out of friends, and just barely clinging on to the last bit of hope you can muster, you're not alone. This story is for you this morning. Scripture's not filled with characters who have it all together. It's filled with stories of people who barely have it together. We have nothing to offer, but who have nothing to offer but their ability to cling to God's promises in the gospel. And as we turn our attention to our final point this morning, we'll see how Ruth's covenantal commitment to Naomi is a beautiful picture of God's nearness to us when we have nothing to offer him but weakness and need. So Ruth's story continues on with just her and her mother-in-law on what appears to be a fool's errand to resettle back in Judah. She's without any resources of her own to speak of. She has no influential friends to call on when she arrives in Judah. In fact, she's just been abandoned by what she could probably call was her closest friend at this point. As Ruth is clinging to her mother-in-law, she hears not thank you or appreciation from Naomi, but further scolding. In verse 15, Naomi tells Ruth to go back to her people, back to her gods, back to where your, your sister-in-law is going. When will Ruth finally get the message? In the recent really, recently released movie, Hacksaw Ridge, uh, it tells the story of a World War II hero named Desmond Doss. He was a combat medic in the Pacific Theater in World War II during the Battle of Okinawa. The movie focuses on a night in battle where Doss worked through the night and carried 75 casualties to safety and lowered each one down by, his, by himself on his own strength, a rope over the side of a cliff. The compelling detail about Doss's story is that he was a conscientious objector. He was opposed morally to the use of weapons in taking human life, but he was still determined to serve his country during the war. 
He performed his duty that night, and he rescued those 75 men without carrying a weapon to protect himself. Everyone else had retreated off over the side of the cliff, but Doss couldn't bear to hear all the cries of those wounded men up on the hill and uh, let them remain there on the battlefield overnight. Doss was awarded the Medal of Honor for his service and became the first conscientious objector to receive that distinguished honor. The movie also details the hardships that Doss encountered um, as he uh, attempted to make his way through the process of being able to serve. He was mocked physically and um, uh, brutally assaulted in boot camp. He uh, survived an attempted court-martial to get him out of the way um, to, so they wouldn't have to deal with his uh, conscientious objection anymore. Um, it's hard to think of a war hero coming from a less expected place. When everyone else around Doss saw a weak, strange, and even pathetic figure, they had no idea that he would ultimately be capable of what he'd be uh, ultimately capable of accomplishing on their behalf. In the same way, Ruth provides us with an unexpected, unexpected champion of the grace of God. Ruth was a nobody. She was not respectable. She had no husband. The only thing she had to offer was her willingness to commit to Naomi, in spite of all the reasons shouting to her that she should have turned back and found a husband in Moab. Yet, Ruth made a commitment that was countercultural. She must have known that reception was going to, the reception she was going to receive in Judah was going to be cold at best. As a Moabite, she was an outsider, even an enemy. More than that, she was the widow of an Israelite who had violated God's law by marrying her in the first place. She was associated with Naomi, the woman whose family had left Judah at, the most, um, at a critical time and settled outside the promised land. At best, Ruth is going to be a shunned and only spoken of in hushed voices as she passed down the street. At worst, she's going to be openly mocked and criticized. She would never be expect, uh, accepted in Bethlehem, and she probably knew that. She should have known that. She's going to be on the outside looking in. Ruth's commitment to Naomi was also full of hope. Hope in the fact that God's power can work in all things related to their upcoming lives in Judah. When you think about it, what reason would Ruth have to declare in verse 16, your people shall be, be my people and your God my God? All she had seen so far from this family was a history of where male, the males had died in Moab and no children had been born to carry on the family name. The only words about God that Naomi has spoken so far are full of bitterness and judgment and despair. I don't know if, you, if you're like me, but all of, the gods, of all the gods that there were to choose from in, in the ancient Near East at that time, Naomi's God would not have been the one that I wanted to choose if I were in Ruth's place. And yet this outsider, this former pagan woman, is able to display more trust in the Lord than a child of the covenant at that point. Ruth is willing to deny herself in her commitment to remain on the road to Judah. She, would have been, look, she should have been looking out for number one, right? If she was looking to ensure the best possible outcome for her future, she would have most certainly gone back to her, with her sister-in-law. Instead, Ruth made a permanent commitment to a new life in Judah. She could have just committed to be with Naomi until Naomi died. That probably wouldn't have been too many years down the road anyway. But Ruth's commitment in verse 17 goes on to say that she will remain and be buried wherever Naomi is buried. 
She even goes farther as to swear an oath of judgment upon herself if she's untrue to her word. Ruth stands firm with Naomi as they enter Bethlehem, and the whole town gets stirred up over their arrival. Amidst the turmoil of the town and Naomi's bitterness, Ruth stands ready for what's next in verse 22 at the beginning of the barley harvest. Ruth's commitment to stick with Naomi and work hard to ensure their survival in Bethlehem is certainly uh, moving and poignant. It identifies Ruth as someone whose faith is steadfast and their trust in God is uh, what comes across when all, all resources seem like they're failing her. And we, like Ruth, should be more willing to be steadfast ourselves when our resources seem to be failing us. We should also be ready to see our circumstances through the eyes of faith and not turn back from following the Lord when security and happiness see, seem to be at the end of a different path. We should be loyal and committed to the good, friend, to the good of our friends and family. But it's also essential that we recognize this morning that Ruth is only an incomplete picture of the grace of God. She was ready and willing to serve Naomi at the cost of her own happiness. But as the rest of Ruth's story goes on to tell us, she was still an outsider with no resources and needed a kinsman redeemer to rescue her and provide for her in the dire circumstances in which she found herself in Judah. Boaz, Ruth's eventual husband, comes into the story and graciously provides for Ruth when she had nothing to offer. Ruth ultimately reminds us that no matter even the greatest acts of loyalty and commitment on our part, that they don't clear us of our need for a redeemer. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul likens us to aliens and outsiders apart from Christ. Just like Ruth, we're still on the, we are all on the outside spiritually looking in. We have no hope and we're without God in the world. We have nothing to offer God that would make us more appealing to him. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. Ruth had nothing to offer and no one to back her up in life. She was a prime example of a person who needed everything, and yet she committed to going to a place where no one would have thought the provision would be found. In our Redeemer, Jesus not only meets our needs, he also knows what it's like to be rejected and ridiculed. We're invited to trust a Savior who can relate to the struggles we have because he came and lived among us. At this time of year, we celebrate his coming. We look to a manger, a place where no one would expect salvation for all mankind to come. It's one of the paradoxes of the gospel. When the world looks for salvation and security, it looks everywhere but to a manger. What hope could possibly lie there? Scripture tells us the answer is the hope for all the nations. Like Ruth committed to walk with Naomi to Bethlehem because she was convinced that there was true hope there, we too find our hope in Jesus, who would be born there generations later. He committed to us by coming to live where we live. As we've sung so far this morning, he's Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a full human life, and he knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. Isn't it striking how Jesus fulfills the, the uh, covenant commitment that Ruth uh, con confesses to Naomi at the end of her speech? He's rescued and redeemed a people for himself, a people made up of resourceless outsiders with nothing to offer but need of him. And because he died to pay the penalty of God's judgment on our behalf, 
nothing will be able to part us from him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these beautiful pictures of the gospel. Uh, Thank you that you are identified with the outsiders and those who have no resources to speak of of their own. Thank you for coming um, to rescue us, to redeem us, help us to trust you, and to to look with eyes of faith upon your promises to provide for us and uh, have the best uh, in mind for us, even when circumstances uh, don't seem to, uh, to lead us in that direction. For all these things in Jesus' name.